We are starting, though, talking about something you just heard in the news, and that has to do with a very large retail chain. The commissioner's investigation determined Home Depot was collecting customer email addresses at checkout when they opted for an e-receipt. Home Depot collected those email addresses and sent that information as well as what the customer purchased to the social media giant. That report talking about what the Privacy Commissioner found about Home Depot sharing personal information of shoppers. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Anne Kavukian, Executive Director at the Global Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre at Toronto Metropolitan University. And thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, as always. Once again, we are talking about personal information being shared. This time, it was Home Depot sharing customer information with the the parent company of Facebook, Meta. What are your thoughts on this? I just find it appalling, especially from Home Depot, who should know better. They've had so many privacy issues in the past, and now they're doing it again. Honestly, Jill, I don't understand it. When you have email or other personal information from a customer... You collect it for one purpose, it's called the primary purpose of the data collection, and you restrict your use of that information to that purpose unless you get the consent of the customer for secondary uses. Did Home Depot do that? No. And there was no transparency. They didn't tell anybody they were doing this. It is just appalling. So this came about when a man, a customer at Home Depot complained, saying that not only did Home Depot share his email with Meta, they also shared that record of the most uh, recent in-store purchases. And this is when uh, people will will be very familiar with this, when oftentimes when you're at a self-checkout, they'll ask you, do you want a printed uh, receipt or an emailed receipt? And we'll put your email in oftentimes. Uh, So are there cases then, it it sounds like, and according to the privacy commissioner, there was no opting in. There was no choice for the consumer here to say, yeah, that's okay or no. Um, Exactly. There was no choice whatsoever. And you see, privacy hinges on Control, personal control relating to the use and disclosure of your personal information, which means A, there has to be transparency and then choice. Neither of those were there. And and do people then, when you go to a, a cashier or a self-checkout, and it could be Home Depot or any company, when people are doing that and opting for the emailed receipt, should they be looking for something that says or clarifies whether or not the company is going to be selling their information to someone else? Well, they should look at it, but that places the burden on them to find out what's going to happen with the information. It should be the opposite. The company should be disclosing to them what else they intend to do with that information. And, of course, that's why there's no transparency. They weren't doing that. Um, You can't exercise any control over your personal information unless you know how they intend to use it. And that's the huge problem here. Home Depot made no effort to convey that information to their customers. Why? Because they probably knew the customer would say, no, forget it. I'm only giving it to you so that you can give me uh, a receipt. That's it. This is the problem. Companies take such steps that they shouldn't with people's personal information. And you see, personal information is critical to privacy. Privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. You want to live in a free and open society, you have to have strong privacy and companies have to respect that. And does it make it, do you think, even more egregious that not only were they sharing email addresses with Meta, they were sharing the receipts, the actual items that people were purchasing. Does that make it worse? 
of course, because that tells Meta not only about this personal, this information in terms of their email, but what kind of things do they like to purchase? How often do they do it? And they can, you know, they can quantify all of this and then make pitches to these individuals. That's why it is so completely unacceptable what Home Depot is doing. And they know better. They should know better. And do you think, should people be more concerned as well? Not that people use cash a whole lot, but if you're using cash, at least at that point, they're not getting your credit card information. Should people be concerned in scenarios like this, that it could be your email, it could be your receipt, it could also be your credit card? It it could be. Now, I don't want to hazard a guess as to the credit card, because so many people use, use credit cards, as do I. And it, I've never had a problem with my credit card in that way because the the banks, et cetera, who exercise control over the credit cards realize how sensitive that information is. So they have gone to some lengths to protect it. What Home Depot is doing is completely different. They've made no effort to notify people what they intend to do with their email or that they're going to intend to reveal the, the products that they've purchased, et cetera. Completely unacceptable. And this, uh, we found out as well from the the Office of the Privacy Commissioner that when this was uncovered, the complaint was made. And in response, Home Depot then agreed that they would stop using, and it's Meta's offline conversions tool, so that they they stopped using that and stopped sharing the data. But is this another example of a company really only stopped doing something because they got caught? Absolutely. And that's the frightening thing of this. If more people complain, then we'd be in a better situation, but they shouldn't have to complain. Um, Home Depot should have notified people, if you're going to use your email for receipt, you know, we may do this and that with it, in which case nobody would give them their email. So I urge people, if at all possible, don't reveal your email. Right. I was going to ask you that whenever I, I'm sure when you uh, if, if you even use self-checkouts, you would never actually click that. And I guess it's easier sometimes, never. right? You don't have to deal with paper and that. But but you would That's never right. do that. I would never do that. It takes two seconds to get the paper out. Just do it and then tear it up if you want to. But don't, if at all possible, don't reveal your email unnecessarily like this. Even in the response, though, from Home Depot, uh, it seems like they're they're kind of downplaying the infor- the the importance of this. Saying uh, they said that even though our use of of the meta analytics tool uh, involved the use of only non sensitive information, you know, as a precaution, we stopped using the tool. It, it seems like oh. like they're they're saying the basic like reading between the lines. There, it seems like they're saying well, it's not really that big of a deal. Of course, they're downplaying it. How the heck do they know what's sensitive and what's not? What may be sensitive to you may be irrelevant to me or vice versa. That's the nature of personal information. It varies dramatically. That's why you have to obtain people's consent, which clearly they did not. Uh, does this point to a bigger problem, too? In that, and in this case, again, it was a complaint from a man who... who alleged that Home Depot had shared his in-store purchases. And my guess is, I don't know exactly how he came about it, but I think we've all been in that scenario, haven't we, where we've purchased something and then suddenly the ads we're getting online are all exactly that item, thinking, well, well, how did they know that I just bought a pair of running shoes? So does it point that it's probably happening a lot more? You're right, Jill. Uh, This is, I'm sure, much more widespread than we are aware of, which is why I always tell people to be very cautious with the information they give out to companies and others, especially in electronic form. So is it enough then, do you think, to just, again, if you follow that rule, never put your email in and get an e-receipt? What else, though, could people do to try and protect themselves? 
Well, you know, even when I'm in a physical store and they, uh, I pay something with my credit card and they say, oh, can we have your postal code? And I say, oh, and what, what, why do you want my postal code? I, I care deeply about my privacy. When, whenever I say that, which is all the time, the guy I'm dealing with usually doesn't know anything about it, but he goes, goes and gets a manager. Manager comes back and says, oh, you care about privacy. Okay, we'll do this, this, and this. They have the means to offer you strong privacy and protect your information. They just don't do it routinely. So you have to speak up. Right. And the postal code, I'm guessing they want to know more kind of where people, what neighborhoods people are shopping. But what are the concerns if somebody knows your postal code? Well, then they can link it with your purchases. And sometimes you have to have the purchase delivered to your home. And then they have your address and your name and away it goes. Personal information is divulged. Right. I, I find that, too, that oftentimes you're purchasing something and they even say it so matter of fact, like, oh, OK, and your email, please. And then I'll say, but you yeah. don't need my email. I'm, I'm good today. Thanks very much. And then that's usually the yeah. end of it. But but you're right. It, it has become so much as though it's it's routine to request that more information. That's right. They make it like it's no big deal. This is just what we do. And they expect you to go along with it. And most people do. So I always say don't do that question at the very least question. All right. Do you think this case will perhaps uh, make people more aware or open it up to, to let companies know that it's not okay to do this, to stop doing this? Oh, absolutely. Um, that's why I'm hoping this gets a lot of attention, which it is getting, because people will realize, companies will realize, customers object to this. You must ask individuals for consent before you use their information for these kind of secondary uses, full stop. All right. Anne Kavukian, always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. My pleasure, Jeff. As you just heard on the news, Canada is answering that call to send tanks to Ukraine. We heard earlier today from Defence Minister Anita Anand, Anand announcing Canada is sending four of its German-made Leopard 2 tanks in the coming weeks. We will also deploy a number of Canadian Armed Forces members to train Ukrainian soldiers with the skills they need to operate this equipment pending coordination with allies. Anita Anand saying it's possible more tanks could be sent in the future as well. So what does this mean as far as Canada's role in helping Ukraine fight that Russian invasion? Well, Christian Luprecht joins us on the line, professor in leadership at the Royal Military College, also director of the Institute of Intergovernmental Relations at Queen's University. Christian Luprecht, thank you so much for being with us today. Good afternoon. My pleasure. What does it say as far as the message being sent that Canada has made this decision to send tanks? Uh, well, it means that on the one hand, we are trying to take our foreign policy interests and our security interests seriously. On the other hand, uh, we don't have a whole big of investment to make because we've neglected the Canadian Armed Forces as an instrument and a tool of foreign policy. And so what we give now, we can't readily replace, and we don't then have the resources to deploy these capabilities uh, elsewhere. And so uh, I think the lesson here is that um, defense is ultimately an insurance policy, and uh, we've been paying uh, that the premium for that insurance policy has gone up and gone up substantially with Ukraine. Um, and for 20 years, we've had the choice in where we send our troops and the force packages that we send. And all of a sudden, we're discovering uh, we no longer have uh, the, the luxury of um, making those types of decisions that now very specific capabilities are required 
to assert uh, and preserve our interests at home and abroad. Uh, and is that because of spending and not spending as much as maybe uh, the NATO requirement or what Canada should be spending on defense? Yeah, but it's also, I think, a, a realization that uh, um, you ultimately need to have a comprehensive full-service military. Look, in the 1990s, the pressure from the United States uh, was, uh, it's all going to be about small wars, so you want to switch to light infantry, you probably don't really need the tanks anymore, and so we've been keeping up the tank fleet, and a lot of people have been asking, well, you know, why does Canada really need a tank fleet? You know, uh, don't we want to spend that money? It costs us, you know, give or take uh, probably about a billion dollars a year to keep up those tanks with all the logistics and the people and so forth. Don't we want to deploy that money differently for defense or otherwise? And now you're learning that actually you do need, if you're going to have a proper insurance policy, you need an all-perils coverage uh, because you don't know what capabilities you're going to need. And when you need those capabilities, as this government in particular has come to discover um, uh, in a rather unfortunate fashion, you can't just buy those capabilities off the shelf. Those are capabilities you need to develop and you need to have when they're actually required because uh, uh, when they're required, they're in high demand and, uh, and, you can't just, uh, and, and you can't just build them, whether that's with artillery pieces uh, or whether that's with tanks. And the challenge here is the influence that Ken is going to have around the table and the credibility that it has uh, in terms of international decision-making and the influence on that decision-making is directly related to what Canada contributes. So Canada could have opted out of the decisions to send tanks, uh, and it would have further undermined already severely tarnished uh, credibility with our allies and partners. Uh, Canada could have gone all in, but then we would have had nothing left to give. Um, in the end, Canada made a political decision to contribute at least a little something so that we can continue to be part of the conversation about uh, security making and security decisions uh, when it comes to European stability. But we're not providing as much as we probably would have needed if we wanted to have real uh, be taken seriously and as a credible ally. And when you call it a political decision, and, and I know one of the quotes from the defense minister earlier today as well, she said that this donation combined with the contributions of allies and partners will significantly help the armed forces of Ukraine as they fight heroically to defend their nation's freedom and sovereignty. I mean, it sounds great, but you call it a political decision. Is it also a symbolic decision as well? Because it's not as though this was given to Ukraine right away or, or it's a huge amount it's a huge number of tanks right so let's understand the process so there's european command and stuttgart has a cell where the ukrainians can now lodge all their requirements and then we go around to about 50 countries um, the ukraine contact group to see who can contribute what um, that then gets fed up to the chiefs of defense staff and defense ministries everybody looks around what they have what they could give it's not about just giving the material it's going to be about who's going to maintain it who's going to provide the ammunition who's going to pay for it uh, who's uh, so so there's a lot of questions sort of associated with that. But then ultimately, the defense ministers need to decide what is the objective that they want to achieve? What is at stake here? And so we've come up with about a total of about 105 tanks and in multiple configurations. So it's going to be owners for the Ukrainians to operate these. It looks like there's going to be perhaps four different types of models of tanks, each with a different logistics trail, um, each with sort of somewhat different ordnance. Um, so this is enough for the Ukrainians to go on the offensive 
but it's not enough for the Ukrainians to um, uh, and, uh, to crush the Russians. Now, the equipment that the Ukrainians now have is qualitatively significantly superior than even what the best Ru- uh, Russian equipment is that, that, the Rus- that the Russians can field. But it is very much, I think, also a deterrence mechanism that the West is going to continue to provide to Ukraine what it needs to stand up for itself and to maintain its sovereign decision-making capability in this conflict, um, but not enough that um, Ukraine can go on sort of a, a massive offensive. And at the same time, it's a signal to the Kremlin that the Kremlin cannot achieve its political objectives on the battlefield. So both sides are ultimately at some point going to be, have to be serious about sitting down together. But the message here is clearly that the Ukrainians will receive the cap- – if the Russians don't back down, the Ukrainians can and will eventually receive the capability to take back the territory that is legally and rightfully theirs. Um, so it's going to get very painful for the Russians, but initially a signal, here's some tanks that we're providing, and we're prepared to send more if that becomes necessary. And and what kind of a response then would you anticipate from Russia in the, that show of support and show like what you just said, that giving Ukraine the needs or the means needed to, to fight back? What kind of a response would we anticipate to get from Russia? Yes, I mean, there's enough here for the Ukrainians to mount a serious sort of counteroffensive uh, with 100 tanks, 100 armored personnel carriers, and uh, maybe as many artillery pieces, you can have a pretty significant impact um, on the offensive. And so uh, Russia will be watching this very closely. Um, And so I think the messaging here is uh, there are capabilities, but we're not providing capabilities that are meant to humiliate the Russians. So it's trying to put the Russians in a bit of a bind where they will very vocally obviously complain about the continued support by the West, but it also doesn't look like the West is out to humiliate, to destroy, to annihilate, to give, give Ukraine the capabilities to, 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 to sort of annihilate much of, the, uh, much of the Russian force. So trying to make sure you signal to the Russians that these are ultimately political problems that need to be solved politically rather than military problems that can be solved on the battlefield. And so that military, uh, the, the military is a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. Uh, but that's also the signal that the West here is sending to Ukraine. And when we talk about the supply, how much Canada has and how much Canada has been investing in defence spending, when we hear from both the defence minister as as well as other officials in that ministry saying that there's the potential of future tank donations from Canada and other ways of helping Ukraine, does Canada have that capability? So this is part of the deterrent signal. Uh, that uh, the government is sending and that is NATO is sending, that it is prepared to give more if there is need to do that. How much capability Canada, give, uh, Canada provides is ultimately a political decision, right? We live in a democracy and it's the political authority, the minister, cabinet, the prime minister that make the decisions and that determine what, are, what interests are at stake and what are the best means for Canada to assert those interests. The minister could have given away every single tank that we have uh, of the roughly 90 or so that we have. The problem is you need about 80 to run sort of a functional fleet and we've been keeping about 50 or so of those in reserve to deploy and we use about 40 of them to train. So uh, which ones are we giving the Ukrainians? Well, we're giving the ones that we've used to train 
those are slightly sort of uh, lower model um, and a slightly older model than the other capabilities. So the signal to Russia is also don't try anything on our allies because we still have capabilities in reserve that are better capabilities than we're giving the Ukrainians that we could deploy if you're going to try to make trouble in that particular um, in uh, in the neighborhood. So there is some strategy here. Um, the problem is if we give more of it away, then we lose our own capability both to train and to deploy. Uh, and um, there's no obvious plan to replace them because, we you know, as the minister didn't announce that we're going to be buying new tanks, and even if the minister wanted to buy new tanks, Kraus Maffei, the German company that makes the Leopard 2s, produces 12 of them a month, and you can bet that those are in high demand currently, So, and we're at the back of the line. So uh, the minister also is looking to be prudent uh, in light of uh, making sure we maintain some capacity. And just one other question about the, the deployment of these and the move to send tanks. How does it compare to sanctions or work in uh, alongside sanctions as far as sending a, mes- uh, a message? Which one do you think kind of sends the stronger message? Well, sanctions are always a tool that work better in the medium and longer term. They always say that sanctions are sticky because they tend to stick around and they tend to take a long time to get lifted and they tend to take do, do longer-term damage to your economy. If you look at, for instance, Iran, uh, but also what's projected to be happening to the Russian economy over the next 10, 15, 20 years. So they will significantly weaken Russia. The most, most important impact of the sanctions is that much of Russian military technology is actually built with Western, um, uh, with, with Western chips and so forth. So if you think of the Sugoi jet, for instance, uh, about two-thirds of the parts are Western-produced high-technology uh, parts. So by not being able to export those parts to Russia, it means that the Russian military-industrial complex has considerable challenges in trying to regenerate um, regenerate capabilities. The military capability is sort of a more... Uh, shorter-term impact uh, in terms of the political solution, but you can see that even here, some of the impact is probably more performative than it is real on the battlefield, given that it's going to take months to provide these tanks. Uh, And from Canada, of course, we have to ship them to Europe, which is probably part of the reason why Canada isn't providing more, because it's going to take a considerable effort just to get them to Europe. Um, And the Americans signaling that they're going to send their tanks, but those are a long ways off, is sort of a signal that, yes, everybody can be doing more, and everybody's prepared to hunker down for the longer term. So now might be a good crime for the Kremlin to rethink all of the offensives that it might be planning for the spring and the summer, because the West and the Ukrainians will be prepared to uh, hold out in the short term militarily and in the medium and long term with sanctions as long as the Putin regime is in place. Christian Luprecht, thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us to talk more about this today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. We are talking now about tipping and some changes that maybe you have also seen, a bit about the history of tipping and how our behaviors have changed in general. Corey Mintz is the author of The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them. He also has written about this recently in an opinion piece in The Globe and Mail. Corey, thank you so much for being with us. Hello, Jill. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us to talk more about this. What kind of prompted you to take a look at gratuity culture and what's happening when it comes to the world of tipping? 
I've always been fascinated by tips since I was, I used to be a, a cook in restaurants. And uh, I remember one time a server coming in the kitchen and sort of counting uh, money in that way that, you know, you flip over the bills and another server more senior came in and said, put that away. And I asked him, I said, is that a hygiene issue? And he said, no, no, no. We know that we earn twice what you earn. It, so we have a rule. We don't count money in front of you. And I've always been fascinated since then about the dynamics of this strange thing that I think a lot of people assume they know how it works. And very few people do, including, you know, while I was writing this piece, I noticed several of, of the experts, the academics that I have reached out to over the years to interview about their research and tipping. You know, several of them, including Michael Lynn from Cornell, who recently said to CNN, I study tipping and I don't know how much to tip anymore. <laughs> Which uh, it kind of makes you wonder, well, if, if the experts don't know what to do, how are we supposed to figure this out yeah. and know what we're supposed to be tipping? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what about the history of tipping? And, and I'm by no means any expert, but uh, have, having done stories and read about some restaurants that have, have gotten rid of the practice, saying that they're, they, they're not doing it anymore, instead they're going to up their wages, uh, a lot of times the reasoning for that is because it's got a bit of a questionable past linked to slavery and didn't come about in, in a very savory way. That's true. I mean, there's so many problems with the tipping structure and how it works in a contemporary sense. But historically, it is absolutely a legacy of slavery in that in, in America, in the United States, post-Civil War, uh, you know, formerly enslaved people who previously were paid nothing uh, as they entered the commercial fields of hospitality and the railroad service, the idea of tipping, which was an idea that was somewhat in vogue in Europe, although not not predominant, was uh, borrowed and really adopted because it meant that this idea at the time that uh, it, it, rather than having to pay a full wage to workers, they could depend on the uh, generosity of wealthy clientele. And this idea really caught on in a casual way. But over the decades, it was really codified into laws in Canada, the United States, where we basically said in most states, uh, or, or provinces, if you're serving alcohol, if you're in a, ter in a situation where you are getting tips, you can be paid less than legal minimum. Right. Okay. And so if we kind of fast forward to where we are today, and, and certainly it has changed a lot over the years, and I know you touch on this in the piece that when the pandemic kind of hit and we saw restaurants struggling to survive, a lot of people, people who could, who were in the position to do so, uh, countered that by tipping more. Yeah, there was a brief boom in that. You know, I had a couple of wealthy friends who felt that there was their civic duty to eat out every night or to order in every night and tip generously. And we saw these sort of incidences, anecdotal evidence of these exorbitant tips. And I think some of the companies, the Square, the software, uh, the sales software company had some evidence of, you know, tips reaching 25, 30 percent, whatever it was. They settled back down to the stratosphere um, but they've still increased, I think, somewhere the average tip is somewhere around uh, 18% versus 17% pre-pandemic. But at the same time, a lot of restaurants, which were, you know, restaurants were in an extinction level event for them during the lockdowns. And as they were trying to figure out what they were going to be, how they were going to survive using all these different tools, so many of them resorted to that sort of kitchen sink of tools, which included <coughs> uh, takeout meals, meal kits, etc., which meant holding on to whatever staff they had who were then sort of shifted from their old paradigm of 
cooks and servers to, okay, everybody's kind of in the kitchen, whether they're making food or packaging it up. And if tips are coming in, it no longer made sense for most of those operators to say, well, let's give the lion's share of these tips to one group of workers, considering that they're no longer doing the same types of jobs. And, and several people have in the last couple of years sort of reexamined and bitten the bullet and said, what if we got rid of tips altogether? Exactly. We've seen more of that. But while we've seen more of that as well, and uh, you you explain uh, an anecdote or something that happened with the, the automatic tip prompting at uh, a counter, we've also seen more of that. And people have been commenting on where maybe you you are going to the liquor store, the, a private liquor store or a coffee shop where you're somebody's just handing you something and suddenly on the the credit card or the debit machine, there's the prim- the, the tip prompt. That's right. I mean, the, the percentage of restaurant operators who are getting rid of tips is infinitesimally, infinitesimally small. What's incredibly common these days is tip creep, which is the spreading of the different types of businesses where we're expected to tip. And now that tipping is almost always done through a tip terminal and not through the sort of cultural norms of our expectations, they can tell us how much to tip. You know, and it's gone from 10, 15, 20 to 15, 20, 25. And it'll keep inching upwards. And as you said, it depends on where you live. But where I live, you can't go to a coffee shop or a bakery now without that tip prompt. And, and that's the part, that tip prompt, that really terrifies me for the future of labor in this country. And, and why so? Why does that terrify you? Well, because tipping has always been a mechanism to offset the cost of paying workers onto the customer. Right? It's a mm-hmm. it's a device used to keep the the illusion or facade of the fair menu price. Right. If I sell you a sandwich for ten dollars, that seems like a fair price. I'm assuming you're going to tip two dollars on top of it. If I say charge you twelve dollars for the same sandwich and say no tip, but I'm going to pay my people more, you may think that's fair. But the concern traditionally has been, oh, now it seems more expensive this sandwich. <laughs> so it's always been used in that way, and now we're seeing that idea spread to more industries, more businesses saying, I'm, and, and they're under real pressure, right? I'm sympathetic to all sides here. They're under so much pressure from inflationary causes. They're seeing all their costs creep up all around. And they're saying, there's only so much I can charge for a loaf of bread or whatever the thing is. And rather than increase my bread price one more dollar, I, I know a baker who makes the best bread in Toronto. And he said he raised the price 50 cents. He heard complaints from customers. So what a lot of people are doing is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to pay my staff better. I'm trying to pay all these additional costs. I'm afraid of raising prices that will force my customers to go across the street to the other business. What if I introduce this tip line? Now there's another 10, 15, 20%, whatever, potentially coming in that I can redistribute to staff rather than have to pay prices. And the fear there is that spreading to other industries rather than businesses, again, doing what's difficult and having to charge the full price for what they're goods and services are worth. And what are your thoughts on the fact on how this is kind of uh, spilling over and spilling away from not only the service industry and the service industry, specifically restaurants, but to to other places like the, the I'll use the liquor store as an example, yeah. the coffee shop. I mean, it's not as though, I mean, it seems absurd that you would be asked to tip, say, the grocery cashier, but maybe that's next. Right. I mean, people get distracted by the idea of 
merit when it comes to tipping. They, they, they tend to focus on the concept that it's sort of a reflection of how well did this person do their job instead of what's really going on, which is the embracing of a super American philosophy, which is that individual private charity should do the job or fulfill the responsibility of compensating workers properly rather than employers or policy solutions that set actual living wages. And that's just, that's a scary point of view because people who have jobs should reasonably be afforded to pay rent and live in the cities that they work rather than this expectation that the, that personal generosity from consumers should pay the rest of the way. And and I think you mentioned this in the piece as well, in that everything costs more, which means people are stretched. Bills at restaurants or wherever you are, if you are going out and you're still doing that, they're getting bigger, which means the tip percentage is bigger as well. Is it going to reach a point, though, where people are just going to, to reach uh, hit the wall because they're being asked to tip everywhere they go? I think we'll hit the wall before then and for a different reason. I I think the concern last year was, you know, inflation through the roof. Labor costs are are really moving in from my perspective in a good way because they were really stagnant in the hospital, not stagnant in the hospitality industry for a long time. So all those prices moved up. Menu prices finally moved up about five to 8% across the board. And last year, it didn't really hurt the industry. People kept coming out. Finally, overall sales in Canada reached or surpassed pre-pandemic sales levels. But I think part of the reason for that is people missed restaurants. They were nostalgic. They were hungry for that social experience. And so they decided to absorb the higher prices. And even though they were told, hey, there's a recession coming, that's coming this year. And I think this is the year that we see that people have been spending more and not saving, in, in, in my estimation. And I think midway through this year, when people start to see those bills, whether it's a credit card bill or, honey, we need to do, buy new windows, and they go, we haven't been putting away money every month. That's the time that most Canadians will look at their discretionary spending, and the first line we all cut always is uh, food and clothing, right? How much do we dine on? How much do we spend on fashion? And that's when restaurants, I think, will really feel it, both in terms of, like, how much prices have gone up, and, yes, how much the tip line have gone up. It will begin to seem like a pretty big luxury as we enter this recession. And so how do you see things playing out then? Are are we going to see a change in the number of times that we see that tip prompt if we're paying with credit cards or debit cards? And is it going to be people deciding I am going to tip here, but I am going to have an awkward kind of perhaps exchange and skip over the tip prompt here? Is that the the future of, of every exchange? I hope not, because it's incredibly uncomfortable. The thing we see more often, and, and what I experienced when I was writing the story, was uh, people working the, the retail, the cash in businesses, verbally prompting people about how not to tip. You know, when they hand you the terminal, and it usually has three options for different percentages, and then a fourth option that's no tip. I'm seeing this happen where they hand it to you and they go, and you can go to the bottom to not tip. Um, which is like, which is a signal that it's a, as uncomfortable for them as it is for us. Maybe for some people because they don't know how much to tip, or simply as in my case, you know, I stopped math in 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 grade ten, mm-hmm. and just having to figure out a percentage that quickly is sometimes 
uh, a little anxiety provoking, but just making that point of sale an uncomfortable moment is not good for business. It's not good. Nobody likes that. that that's, not, that's not the feeling that most businesses want to leave you with. So I think the industry kind of has to figure out a way to stop making that last interaction with customers a socially awkward one. All right. It's an interesting topic and one I think that so many people, if not everybody, has dealt with at some point. Corey Mintz, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.